I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Podcast audience, you've stumbled upon a very special episode of I Need You To Like Musicals. We're gonna do things a little differently today. Now, why would somebody host a podcast called I Need You To Like Musicals if they didn't have some desire for their audience to like musicals? Well, I do have that desire. I think that there uh, that musical theater is one of the is is a somehow overrated and underrated form of storytelling. That um, when done right, it can be transcendent and it can be better than just about anything on the planet. But when done wrongly or done cynically, it can be really annoying and just a, a huge pain in the ass. Now, today, I'm going to talk about two shows that I do not need you to like. Not only do I not need you to like them, I need you to not like them. I need you to reject them so that the culture at large will reject them and that ultimately, innovative, original works can make their way back to Broadway. This is part one in our Karaoke Hell series about jukebox musicals. Now, the critic Stephen Holden coined the term karaoke hell to describe jukebox musicals. And um, there's a lot of them, folks. I mean, for a while there, it was looking like they were going to be the only thing out there. Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, maybe on this one, maybe on the Sondheim one, I don't remember, um, the economics of Broadway have changed. It is not a place where you can be... uh, young, up-and-coming, scrappy songwriter at Tin Pan Alley hammering out a tune in a community of artists and then trying to get your show on Broadway and going to see each other's shows and supporting each other, having an artistic community. No. Broadway is located in Manhattan, which is located in New York City. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, And practically nobody that doesn't have a, a big bag of money can live in Manhattan. Uh, there is no creative community in Manhattan anymore, at least not, uh, you know, among anybody who's, uh, scrappy and up and coming. It's all, uh, just a bunch of billionaires. So, what's Broadway for? Broadway's for the tourists, the out-of-towners. What do out-of-towners want to see? They want to see something familiar. They want to see a musical based on a movie that they, uh, is a desert island, uh, guilty pleasure of theirs. Or they want to see... Their favorite artist, maybe it's Queen, maybe it's Alanis Morissette. They want to see their whole catalog of songs bundled together with some shitty storyline. Let me uh, let me amend that. That's what they think they want to see. That's what the bosses think that you want to see, America. But you're smarter than that, and you need to tell them that you are. You need to tell them, no, I will not be pandered to with this shit. I want to see the next Rodgers and Hammerstein come up with something new. I want to see the next Stephen Sondheim. I want to see the next Lin-Manuel Miranda. I don't need to see Moulin fucking Rouge. Does that count? Yeah, that counts. So look, um, jukebox musicals are bad. There are practically no exceptions to this rule. They're all bad. Some are worse than others. 
And the two that I'm going to talk about today uh, have a lot in common. They are um, not only jukebox musicals, they are quote-unquote rock operas, and they were both born out of quote-unquote concept albums. And now, I know what you're thinking. Like, what, what, this, this is so negative. What is the point of uh, spending your time releasing content that just spreads negativity, Chris? Why don't you talk about what's good in the world? Well, listen, I, 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 I'm happy to do that. There are a lot of things that I think are great. I talked about Parade last week. I talked about Matilda the week before. I think those are both great. Um, uh, Hades Town, for instance, I think is one of the best things that's been on the Broadway stage for years. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. That is back here in town in Los Angeles, locally at the Amundsen. I'm trying to see if I can justify buying a ticket to it. I saw it twice last time it was here last year. Um, I think it's one of the best things ever, and I've been listening to it in my car lately, and I just love it. And I can't wait to talk about that, but that's not what today's show is about. Today's show is about two shitty jukebox musicals. So just let me get through this. And I think <laughs> that sometimes you can it helps you to identify what is good to define what is not good. And, um, you know, I don't think that's necessarily you know, a negative. Maybe it is, but uh, that's what we're going to do here today. So as always, if you don't like that, there's the door. I gotta tell you something. There's a lot of flies in this room where I'm recording this. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't have any windows or doors left open, but I'm overrun with flies. Anyway, that doesn't concern you. Um, the two shows we're talking about today, folks, are The Who's Tommy and American Idiot. So, let's talk briefly about rock operas and... Um, the failure of rock opera overall. Now, I know a lot of people... There are, there are rock operas that are beloved. There are people that will die on the altar of Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and that's fine. You know, I have a uh, nostalgic affection for Jesus Christ Superstar. I was not alive when it came out, but I did it in high school, and I feel, uh, feel sort of affectionate towards it. It's not good. And rock operas are doomed because they never quite hit on both cylinders. Either the story suffers or the music suffers. Um, the music in a rock opera never actually sounds like any rock music that you might just sit and listen to. And if it does, like in the case of Tommy by The Who, the original uh, concept album, of course, not the original cast recording, I would not recommend ever sitting and listening to that. If you listen to one song in the original Tommy, you may be like, this is a pretty good song. But story-wise, you're like, oh no, uh, that's total nonsense. Sorry, I don't think that that's uh, too out of line to say, and we're going to get into it. So, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, with, uh, you know, and we're going to have an episode about that, I'm sure. Uh, that album first, right? It's uh, First it was an album. Uh, a concept album, but uh, more of a, a sort of a less uh, abstract than Tommy. Like it's, we all know the story. I don't want to bum everybody out. It's uh, the passion of the Christ. It's that whole thing. And yeah, we know they betray him. They deny him. They have a last supper. They kidnap him, kidnap him. They arrest him. <laughs> and then they, he hangs on a cross and everybody cries. So, um, you know, a concept album is a weird concept, uh, if you will, because, you know, what makes a concept album? Like, if you were to say concept album, the first thing that people might think of would be Tommy or 
Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, but I think that what's interesting about those is that they sort of come out of the gate with a loose story or theme, and then they sort of abandon that theme as they go. So I don't think a concept album needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. In fact, there's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure thing to the ones that do it really well. And I think that that, if you look at uh, albums by the band The Mountain Goats, which just happens to be my favorite band. Sorry to be a cliche white guy with a beard and a plaid shirt, but I just enjoy the music of The Mountain Goats. And they have uh, their albums, The Sunset Tree or We Shall All Be Healed. Let me. So We Shall All Be Healed is an album about... A group of friends addicted to meth living in Pomona, California, basically, more or less. Now, when I listen to that album, all of those songs are on that theme. There is no uh, explicit story, but I feel like I have the story filled in. Like when I hear that, when I hear the songs in that order, I tell a story to myself based on those songs. And similarly in uh, some of it, you know, all, all Hail West Texas, The Sunset Tree, the other Mountain Goats albums. It's, um, and I, you know, I've incorrectly had the longing when I was younger to like, oh, I want to take, one, you know, We Shall All Be Healed or The Sunset Trees and make it a, a play with music and employ magic realism. That would be so great. But here's what you would do if you, if you turned a concept album into a musical on stage. You would rob it of its mystique. An album has mystique it's just uh auditory <laughs> and you're not allowed to rob it of that mystique so a concept album does not necessarily need to tell a story it really just needs to give you the tools to tell yourself the story and every time they try to put one of these on stage it fucking sucks it sucks with one exception with one exception now, um, that one exception, as I mentioned before, is Hadestown. Now, that's not rock necessarily. That's like folk music. But it's the same. So it's where on Broadway is the music that I like, I guess, is what I'm wrestling with here and what I've always wrestled with. Because I grew up listening to musicals and just my favorite genre of music was, you know, musical theater. Show tunes. And then I got to college and I started uh, smoking a little pot and I started being like, ooh, the Beatles. Ooh, listen to this. And, you know, Elliot Smith, Ben Folds, Wilco. And I started to like these indie alternative singer-songwriter things. And that does not exist on Broadway. At least it didn't until Hadestown. I think that's the closest we've ever come. And Hadestown, which I liked the concept album of Hadestown in advance, um, you know, 10 fucking years ago when that thing was around. Anna East Mitchell, um... And I used to sort of tell myself the story in my head uh, based on, because we all know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and we listen to the songs and we, you know, it really paints a picture. When I heard that that was coming to Broadway in 2019, I was like, eh, I already like it the way that it is. I don't want to see this on Broadway. Let me tell you something. When I saw this thing on stage, when it came, when it was on tour, not only did it keep all of the things that I had in my head intact, but it deepened 
It did things that I did not know that it was doing or that it was capable of doing. So three cheers for Hadestown. This episode is not about Hadestown. This episode is about shitty shows like The Who's Tommy and American Idiot. Now, when you watch these rock operas based on concept albums, you, you want to lower your expectations a little bit. And maybe you'll have a little bit more fun. First of all, don't expect logic, especially with Tommy. Like, if you're watching this thing, do not expect a, a storyline to be logical. Because it's not going to be. It's, uh, it's, it's goofy as fuck. Don't expect humor of any quality, level of quality. Um, it's, 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 so it's, you ever watch, you know, Hard Day's Night and Help or uh, with the Beatles or, or just like listen to like bootlegs of the outtakes of the Beatles during the White Album and just like John Lennon's whole thing where he's trying to be hilarious all the time and being like, tonight's program involves the Queen and rah, and it's like, oh, ha, 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 ha. It, it's not funny. And that's, boy, the who, their sense of humor and with this director, at least of this film, it's just, it's, uh, it's not funny. Uh, likewise with American Idiot. The sort of like, I'm a guy in a band in the 90s and this is me being funny. Ha ha ha. It's uh, a little tiring. Most importantly, don't expect meaning. The whole thing about pop music or rock music is that it's the emperor's new clothes a lot of the time. Okay. It's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. People don't want to seem dumb or uncool, so they don't question things like this, like the Tommy or American Idiot, because they have this sort of the tone of depth and meaning. Like, you don't want to be the asshole in your group of friends in 1969 being like, wait, what? Why am I watching a story about a fucking guy that plays pinball? Because then your friends will be like, you don't get it, man. You're square. That guy's square. And then you find out, you know, with my uh, heavy-duty research I do on this program, uh, you know, the, the, the musical Tommy, uh, the sorry, the concept album Tommy and the musical and the movie, pinball plays heavily into it. And so you're like, oh, this, what's the significance of the pinball? Well, the significance is that uh, Pete Townsend, the, front, uh, the principal songwriter of this album, he wrote Pinball Wizard. Because the music critic for the New York Times at the time was a fan of pinball, and he thought that this might get their album a favorable review. So, the Emperor has no clothes. Let's get into it. You know, I'm giving away too much here in the preamble. Let's talk about The Who's Tommy! Now, The Who's Tommy is the name of the show when it gets on Broadway. It's just called Tommy when the album is released, and it's by The Who. The band The Who, the British uh, band in the 1960s. It's their fourth studio album in 1969. And the thing is, it's a great album, Tommy, if you listen to it as an album. I think that the shortcomings and the story and the writing of it and the attempt at profundity can be excused because, let's face it, it's written by a stone 24-year-old with uh, surrounded by yes-men that are not telling him this is a stupid idea. And now here we are, you know, 50-plus years later, and everyone's still pretending a lot of this was a good idea. It was a bad idea, this pinball business. So The Who, uh, the great band, they're in a slump in 1968. 
their last uh, record didn't do great. They're in debt because they keep destroying their guitars and drums on stage after at the end of every show. You know, that's Pete Townsend's thing. He smashes his guitars and the drummer Keith Moon smashes his drums. Yes, Phoebe Bridgers didn't come up with that, Gen Zers. They, she's standing on the shoulders of the Who here and that was their thing. Actually, Bill Burr, the uh, comedian and uh, fellow podcaster, Bill Burr, um, he had a whole thing about he would watch that when he was growing up. He'd be like, can I just have that guitar? Like, I've been saving up. Like, I, I, I would kill for that guitar and I have to watch them destroy it in front of me. Bill Burr, by the way, a master of the uh, solo podcast. Uh, I probably have a thing or two to learn from that gentleman. Don't agree with all of his views, but uh, he's always fun to listen to. So Pete Townsend's whole thing, and if you don't know, um, the interesting thing about The Who is that, you know, we got Roger Daltrey as the front man, and then we got Pete Townsend uh, on lead guitar writing all the songs. And I guess he sings from time to time, but you got the singer that's not really involved in the writing, which I guess is not that weird. Um, who else did that? Uh, Rush. We had uh, Neil Peart, the drummer, was writing all the songs, and they put all that Ayn Randian shit into it that was all creepy and weird. So um, Pete Townsend wants to go beyond the three-minute pop song convention. He wants to, uh, he's, he's the Sufjan Stevens of his day. He's like, why can't I just have a song that's fucking three hours long and an album that's five seconds long? And why does it have to be 12 three-minute songs in one album? And his manager says, why don't you write a sort of uh, rock opera? And, you know, this is the first time that term is used. Uh, it's uh, sort of invented, rock opera. And so Pete Townsend's goal is he wants to write a series of songs that stand on their own, but form a cohesive whole on an album. There's your first mistake, Pete, at least on the Broadway musical level. You know, in fairness, he probably never thought it would become a Broadway musical and didn't care. Um, you know, that, that, that's, as we have learned going through uh, the most egregious examples, like if you're trying to write songs that stand on their own and you're trying to tell a story, it's going to be stilted and shitty. And uh, also, it didn't work. There's exactly one song from Tommy that stands alone that anyone gives a flying fuck about, and that's uh, we are uh, 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 pinball wizard. <laughs> he also, um, it was a very important. He wanted it to be live concert material. He didn't want it. There was a trend at the time, the like with the Beatles and the Beach Boys were just like into going into the studio and making something just for the vinyl and not uh, touring with it and he wanted to be sure to not do that he wanted to make it something they could play on stage um, this is really funny Pete Townsend uh, has the idea for this dumb crazy story and then he gives an interview to Rolling Stone before they make the album in 1968 and he goes on and on and on telling the story of the album to this interviewer and like it gets published and you know after the fact the, the manager said that he described the narrative better in that interview than the album itself did and then Townsend regrets that because he felt like he had to stick to that blueprint so he was just running his mouth and then he's like shit I guess I gotta stick to this fucking story now when he's making the album he uses a lot of what we would call in the musical theater trunk songs or songs that you've written for other purposes second mistake Sondheim is very against using truck, trunk songs when you're writing something new and Sondheim is a lot better at this than the rest of us so uh, we should take his word for it so since Sensation is a song you wrote about some Australian girl that he met on tour Welcome and I'm Free he wrote about uh, Meher Baba an Indian religious leader he was following at the time and one of the worst songs Sally Simpson uh, was about a gig that they did with the Doors that got really violent 
So there you go. He sort of shoehorned those in there. And so if you're not familiar with Tommy, The Who's Tommy, or the movie Tommy, those are the three versions, uh, concept album, stage show, and movie. The basic story is there's a little boy that gets traumatized because he watches his father kill his mother's lover. His parents tell him to deny it, and then, oh, you didn't hear it, you didn't see it, uh, and then this turns him deaf, dumb, and blind somehow. By the way, wh how, why dumb? <laughs> why, do they, why is that a thing, that you, you're deaf, dumb, and blind? That's, that's so mean. Why, why, do you, why are you always necessarily dumb when you're deaf and blind? So as a deaf and blind and maybe possibly dumb child, he's sexually abused. And uh, he copes with all of this by playing pinball. And he becomes a celebrity pinball player. Or a pinball wizard, if you will. Hey, speaking of which, here's a little something for you, folks. You're welcome, Pinball Wizard by The Who. Um, okay, that was my uh, melodica, by the way. Sounds a little out of tune. Um, I don't know if you noticed that. So anyway, yeah, he's a pinball wizard. Uh, has to be a twist. Um, and, and then the doctor, once he can go to a decent doctor with all this pinball money, he's the doctor tells him this is all psychosomatic and that he's uh, psychological and he prescribes him a mirror. And so there's a, eventually the smashing of this mirror somehow cures him, but uh, he becomes all self-absorbed and he's got a messiah complex and then he gets a bunch of followers and disciples and then they all turn on him and then the end. That's right, folks. That's all there is to it, brother. So before it's ever a Broadway musical, they make a movie of it, which is interesting. It's sort of out of order. It's concept album, movie, stage show. The movie happens in 1975. It's classified as a satirical operetta fantasy drama film. All right, a lot going on there. And if you really want to immerse yourself in The Who's Tommy, I would say the film is probably your entry point. I mean, it's all, I, it's all shit. I mean, or listen to the album if you want and just rock out to it a little bit. But uh, if you really want to be told this pointless story, check out the movie. It's directed by Ken Russell. Um, and uh, I had not heard of him, but then I looked at his filmography and he directed The Boyfriend. And if you've ever seen the film version of The Boyfriend, yeah, makes a lot of sense. It's the same as this where it's like, at first it's like, oh, this is cute. This is interesting. This is different. And then by the end, you're like, wow, this is a lot. And I need to lie down. He also wrote the screenplay. He does not like rock music, as it turns out. He didn't want to do it because he doesn't like the music of The Who. But he liked the story and the theme. What? He had that backwards. The music's great. The story is garbage. So um, he works with Pete Townsend on it. He also recycles old elements from his old things. He wrote a script for a movie called The Angels, where Mia Farrow is supposed to play a pop star who becomes a messianic figure. He also recycles uh, another script uh, about a composer who writes music for TV commercials uh, for Beans. And that's why you get a whole Bean commercial thing in here for no reason at all. So the whole thing is just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's digging in the wastebasket, this thing, this movie, and this 
whole thing. Uh, it says, based upon the rock opera by Pete Townsend with additional material by John Entwistle and Keith Moon. That's, of course, the bass player and drummer of The Who. Roger Daltrey is the only uh, of the foursome there that didn't do any writing. Now, Keith Moon, as we all know, we lost him. He died young. Uh, it was uh, with drugs. Um, John Entwistle, more recently, I think in, I want to say, the mid to late 2000s, he was like down on his luck. And The Who had been broken up or not playing. And he called up uh, Pete and Roger and said, guys, I... I'm going to lose my house. I, I need some fucking cash flow here. Can we do some shows? Can we do a tour? And they schedule a tour and they do like one or two shows. And then John N. Twistle dies in the hotel room from an overdose. I did not fact check that, by the way. This is something that I knew uh, by uh, word of mouth. So if I have any of those details wrong, uh, I have some of those details wrong. So there you go. Here's my favorite review of the film of Tommy from the Washington Post by Gary Arnold. He said, quote, the music on the original album had a certain obscure dignity and integrity, and these qualities don't withstand the Russell treatment. On record, Tommy seems a bit mysterious. On screen, it's just banal. And there you go. Proves my point, doesn't it, folks? Now, if you want to hear something really banal, or see something really banal, rather, let's see The Who's Tommy on stage. This happens in the early 90s. It starts in La Jolla, actually, here in California. La Jolla, a uh, theater near uh, San Diego. When uh, Des McAniff is, uh, helps write the script and he directs it, there's not a lot of info on how or why the stage version of Tommy was made. And I have to assume it was just a cha-ching, cha-ching. It was like, hey, no one's done this on stage yet. Let's capitalize on this. I feel like musical theater sucked in the 90s. I feel like, especially the early 90s, before Rent, and I'm not saying Rent is great or anything. Um, boy, I thought it was when I was 14. But I think that musical theater was just shitty at that time in history. Let me know if I'm wrong about that. We got Michael Cerveris. Michael Cerveris <laughs> playing Tommy Cerveris. We all know who he is, right? The bald guy. We have an all-star ensemble. I mean, people that are not stars yet, but this is how the Norm Lewis gets his start. This is where Sherry Renee Scott gets started, too. I mean, uh, Kathy Hyatt, the big-time star from the last five years. And Alice Ripley, the recently canceled star of Next to Normal. Um, I don't know if that really held. I remember people were trying to cancel her, and I'm not sure that was kind of a halfway one. I, I don't know. There's a weird thing in the play where um, grown-up Tommy narrates the story of little boy Tommy by singing Amazing Journey and all the see me, feel me, uh, touch me, heal me. Uh, so there you go. Now, um, Stephen Sondheim, the master of uh, musical theater craftsmanship, he has a part in his book where he doesn't name this person he calls them X, but I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that he's talking about Pete Townsend. And I did a little Reddit <laughs> thing on this at the time, uh, not recently, but when I read it. And uh, people seem to concur with this theory that this is Pete Townsend. And here's, uh, this is in his uh, preamble to the book where he's talking about 
Rhyme. It's a chapter called Rhyme and Its Reasons. Now, as we all know, if we suffered through Sondheim on Adderall, Sondheim is uh, fanatical about true rhymes, and he thinks that near rhymes are false rhymes. He doesn't like this bullshit with the near rhymes. He says, uh, let me quote him here, and I'm actually reading from a physical book here, so I I'm sorry if it goes bang, bang, page turn. Okay. Quote, there is nothing wrong with near rhymes. Two generations of listeners brought up on pop and rock songs have gotten so accustomed to approximate rhyming that they neither care nor notice if the rhymes are perfect or not. To their ears, near rhymes are not only acceptable, but preferable. As in all popular art, familiarity breeds content. Accent on the second syllable. Oh, sorry, content. My bad. <laughs> in fact, pop listeners are suspicious of perfect rhymes. Associating neatness with a stifling traditionalism and sloppy rhyming with emotional directness and the defiance of restrictions. <laughs> okay. Uh, here is the rationale for that view, as offered by one of pop music's most successful lyricists, whom I shall discreetly refrain from naming and refer to imaginatively as X. X ventured out of pop into musical theater once, and with a hit show, I might add. Shortly before the show opened on Broadway, a television interviewer commented to X that some theater critics might get picky about the fact that your rhymes are not always true ones. How do you feel about that? X replied, I hate all true rhymes. I think they only allow you a certain limited range. I'm not a great believer in perfect rhymes. I'm just a believer in feelings that come across. If the craft gets in the way of feelings, then I'll take the feelings any day. I don't sit with a rhyming dictionary, and I don't look for big words to be clever. To me, they take away from the medium I'm most comfortable with, which is today. Allowing for X's dismissal of every first-rate lyricist from Berlin to Hammerstein as having a limited range, X is nevertheless not the only songwriter to voice this defense of laziness. I reprint it simply because it's the most articulate one that I've come across. The notion that good rhymes and the expression of emotion are contradictory qualities, that neatness equals lifelessness, is, to borrow a disapproving phrase from my old counterpoint text, the refuge of the destitute. Claiming that true rhyme is the enemy of substance is the sustaining excuse of lyricists who are unable to rhyme well with any consistency. Take that, motherfucker! And again, I'm pretty sure he's talking about Pete Townsend. But uh, it's true. And if he's not talking about him, it applies to him. And there's a few lyric weirdness things that happen in this, and we will talk about them. I do want to get into the show here. So, um... They add a song for the stage musical called I Believe My Own Eyes, which is the most musical theater sounding song. Um, and, you know, that's all I have to say about that song. It's fine. It's pretty. It seems out of place. Weirdly, though, the ending of the stage musical, they make it about forgiving and reconnecting with your family, which is insane because Tommy's family is awful. <laughs> His father's a murderer. His mother's fine, I guess. I mean, she's an uh, accomplice or a, after the fact or a aiding and abetting. And his uncle molests him. And his cousin beats the shit out of him. And uh, he kind of just sort of gives him all a pat on the back and a hug at the end. And it's, uh, yeah, weird. Very weird. Even the uncle who molests him. I was in The Who's Tommy in 2012, I should tell you that. I did it at uh, a, a theater in Hollywood, and they created a new role for me, just like you might with a uh, elementary schooler that is one too many in your class. But what they did, uh, they, they I sang Pinball Wizard, the only song that matters, which was a great honor. 
And usually that's sung by like three or four of the guys and Cousin Kevin. They created the role of, I was the, basically what Elton John does in the movie, the, the pinball champion that's being uh, dethroned. Uh, but my character was called the Pinball Wizard, which made no sense because I was thinking about how Tommy is the Pinball Wizard. Um, and uh, the, the, I, uh, my dear friend Angela, who was the choreographer for this, who I became friends with afterward, told me what a horrible challenge it was to choreograph uh, my song because uh, I was, uh, I'm Frankenstein and I can't dance. So she had to sort of choreograph things around me. Let me talk about um, I, I, I rewatched the movie of Tommy, um, much to my uh, horror. I, I did slog through this thing, and uh, I, I, I took some notes. And so I, uh, most of it's about the writing, but some of it's film specific. So, like right away, you know, you could tell it's 1975 and not 1969 anymore because we're hearing some weird synths, and we're seeing some even weirder things with uh, Anne Margaret and her lover uh, having a romantic scene in a stream that seems very over the top. Now, Anne Margaret, I feel very sorry for her watching this because I don't really know much about Anne Margaret apart from her Bye Bye Birdie uh, thing and the whole Mad Men episode about how this is apparently the most sexy thing anyone had ever seen in their lives and nobody could uh, deal with Anne Margaret singing that song and being so sexy. Uh, <laughs> But, like, in this, she looks kind of alarming the whole time. And she's doing, like, I, she's being a good sport. She's doing a lot of cartoonish, weird shit. But, yeah, I keep thinking, like, oh, man, this is, like, undignified. Ugh. She ends up taking a bath in some beans. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that when it comes up. There's a long, weird overture uh, where there's all this movie love, and then there's war, and then there's grief, and then there's a birth, and then the war is over. The first sung line, actually, I got to sing it in the show on stage because I doubled as the ensemble. Uh, Captain Walker didn't come home. His unborn child will never know him. Uh, they find out that Captain Wa uh, Oliver's father has uh, been killed. Uh, whatever. Now, after she's done grieving, she has a baby, and it's Tommy, and then she goes to Bernie's holiday camp, which is, a uh, so that, that, that's taken from Tommy's holiday camp, which on the album is later on, and it's this weird thing. So Oliver Reed, our old friend from the movie version of Oliver, uh, he's playing uh, Uncle Frank, or Frank, or whatever, the guy, the mom's lover. And he's just, he's all the way through the movie. This guy never goes away. He's sort of whatever. Him and the mom are present throughout all aspects of Tommy's life. And it's not, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But he's got this holiday camp where everybody's exercising the whole time. Now, Tommy's holiday camp uh, is the only song credited to Keith Moon, the drummer. But then I found out he actually didn't write it. He had the idea for it. And he told uh, Pete Townsend to write it. And Pete gave him the credit. So that's nice. But uh, be advised, Keith Moon did not write that song. And it is a weird song. So then uh, this guy Frank and Tommy's mom start fucking. Um, and then they sing a, a pretty little song. They change the lyrics to, uh, got a feeling 21 is going to be a good year. They say they change it to 51 because they're moving the timeline up. It's post-World War II instead of post-World War I, which is what it is in the album and in the play. Um... 
then there's this murder scene, you know, and this is the big change that the movie makes. In the album and in the play, um, Tommy's dad comes back. It turns out he wasn't really dead. And he sees his wife in bed with another man and he kills that man. In the movie, Tommy's dad comes back and he sees his wife in bed with another man. And that man kills him, Frank. He kills Tommy's dad. And then Tommy's dad is some ghost figure that keeps coming up. By the way, Tommy's dad played Jesus in Jesus of Nazareth, the film. Uh, I don't have the actor's name uh, at my fingertips at the moment, but be advised, Tommy's dad is Jesus. Um, and then the mom is, and, the, and Frank are just drenched in sweat, and they do one of the most interesting parts in the score where they go, you didn't hear it, you didn't see it, you won't say nothing to no one ever in your life, you never heard it. Um, and I, I, I'll, this story obviously is autobiographical for Pete Townsend. I mean, it seems pretty clear that it's about somebody that went through some things and then got famous and then went through some more things. And it's like, what did you see and hear in real life, Pete Townsend? Has he ever told us? Give us a call if I'm missing that information. Um, around Amazing Journey, I sort of started to realize this movie is pretty cool. <laughs> I kind of like it. And it must have been fucking incredible in 1975 if you went and saw this in a theater and you were on the right drugs. I mean, Wow. The, the, the Amazing Journey, especially, is trippy. And I wonder, I have this whole theory because psychedelic shit like this, I was a wake and bake stoner for my early 20s and I stopped smoking pot when I got sober from alcohol when I, right before my 24th birthday. But I got tripped out by non-psychedelic-oriented things. And if I would absorb things that were meant to be psychedelic... For instance, 2001 A Space Odyssey or uh, the music of Pink Floyd, for instance. I would not be interested and I would find it boring. Now, a longtime sober man in my late 30s, I will listen to Dark Side of the Moon and have a psychedelic uh, experience in sobriety uh, that uh, feels very valuable. Same thing with uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think that that's... Uh, I don't know. I think that the... I think that the the drugs are in the thing, and you don't need drugs to experience the thing. This is a boring theory. I'm going to stop talking about it. My favorite song in Tommy is Christmas. That's a fun one. Now, they have a terrible rhyme in it, but I like it. And you know what rhyme I'm talking about. Sing it with me. Five, six, seven, eight. Tommy doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know who Jesus was or what praying is. I don't know. I like it. <laughs> it's awkward. It's uh, wobbly. But I like it. Oliver Reed can't sing very well, so you 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 lose a lot of the the the, the good parts uh, throughout. Like on the Tommy, can you hear me? Tommy, can you hear me? Because he just can't sing. And um, when Tommy grows up, he becomes uh, Roger Daltrey, who is a funny-looking man who can't act. The front man of the Who it was a weird choice to cast him in this. And he's just sort of, um, he's just sort of there, staring, and he's deaf, dumb, and blind. We get Eric Clapton coming in, singing Eyesight to the Blind, which is actually a cover, believe it or not. I did not know this. It's a cover of a blues song from the early 50s by Sonny Boy Williamson III. Well, stealing from the old black bluesmen again. These rock and roll white guys. There's another example. They do a thing in the movie where they're worshiping Marilyn Monroe, like a statue of Marilyn Monroe in this church. I find that irritating. It's just like, come on, dude. Shut the fuck up. 
Then all of a sudden, like Frank owns a strip booth, a strip club with nudie booths or a harem. I don't know what it is. And we get the song Acid Queen. This is a bad song, and it's a thankless job for Tina Turner, the late Tina Turner. Rest in peace. Um, you know, she is so great. Like, why, why are we wasting her time? I'm the gypsy and acid queen. She does a good job, but it's just like, it's a bad song. And it's unclear. It's insulting, but it's also, they, they do some weird shit with injecting him with drugs in an injection suit. So it's like, what's the point? It's like sex plus drugs, like prostitute plus dealer. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Jesus. <laughs> what the fuck? Fun fact, um, Mick Jagger was originally supposed to play the Acid Queen. That's weird. He didn't want to do it unless he could sing three of his own original songs. Okay, thanks anyway, Mick. That's uh, not what we're trying to do here, pal. <laughs> um, so after they try to inject this poor uh, handicapped man with drugs and sex... Um, we get into the abuse songs. Now, these are the two uh, songs written by John Entwistle, and they're back-to-back. -back. Uh, Cousin Kevin um, is meant to babysit Tommy. Do you think it's all right to leave the boy with Cousin Kevin? I like those parts, those do you think it's all right things. Those are fun. Um, and Cousin Kevin is not a bad song, chord-wise. And... Um, both of these songs, I mean, it's very weird. So fiddle about, I mean, that's the, that's rough. And especially, I mean, when you do it on stage, when we did it on stage, I believe, Tommy was still a child. And this actor had to fiddle about, uh, but in a, like a stylized, it was like stylized musical theater child molestation. And with lyrics like, down go the bedclothes, up goes the nightshirt, fiddle about, fiddle about, fiddle about. It's uncomfortable. I'm going to say it. I'll, I'll say it. It's uh, not uh, comfortable. <laughs> and in the movie, Uncle Ernie's played by Keith Moon, the drummer. And it's fucking weird and uncool. Like he's sitting there drinking a Newcastle, but he cracks an egg into it. Ugh. Oh, and by the way, Cousin Kevin, uh, at some point he... he spanks Tommy with an iron and that must be somebody's fetish right it's like somebody must have gotten off on that watching it by the way it's not a child in the movie it's it's uh it's uh what's his name it's Roger Daltrey in case you were alarmed by what I just said uh and the whole thing with the mirror stop wasting my time with this mirror fuck you you know it's again it's it's rock star uh, poetry. It's I, it bothers me and it's stupid. He goes through all the, this junkyard full of old stoves and broken down cars, and he finds a pinball machine, and he's writhing around. Like the director has Roger Daltrey doing a lot of like writhing and suffering all the way through this. Like ah, ah, I don't know where I am, ah, but silently or to, or to music. So he gets all into playing the fucking pinball in this fucking junkyard. And then we get into the best part of the film, the best song on the album and in the show, Pinball Wizard. And it's sung by, that's right, folks, Elton John. Doing a piano version of it, which um, sounds a little something like this. Which only serves to expand on how good the song uh, by The Who is. Like, I like The Who original and I like the Elton John version. 
that this is the it's a good song. I'm not the only one that thinks so. It's the hit. It's the one everyone knows. And Elton John is the best part of the film. He's wearing these gigantic Doc Martens. Apparently, he only agreed to do the film if he could keep them. And uh, this is 1975, baby. This is peak Elton. I have no interest in seeing Elton John in concert now. I know he just did his farewell tour. Let's hope he stays farewelled because, you know, it's over, buddy. He can't uh, hit the notes anymore. And he just sits at the piano. But th this is back when he's uh, he's got a little energy to him. And he's got that high uh, that high voice. And they, they, they it's cute. The, the pinball machine is controlled by piano keys. And then the band pops in. That, and this happens from time to time. You get the Who coming in playing themselves. And, uh, of course, during Pinball Wizard, Pete Townsend can't resist breaking his guitar. And uh, So we go from the best part of the film immediately to the worst part, which is this fucking bean commercial. What is with British people and beans? They're obsessed with beans. Every time I see something that takes place in London, somebody's having beans. Beans are gross. Stop eating beans. <sighs> And we have Tommy's mom, like, all rich on a rich, like, 70s idea of rich with a rotating bed and all these fancy shit. And she's wearing sequins. And, you know, poor Anne Margaret. Yeah, they, they, they have beans shoot out of the TV and she's writhing around in beans and it sucks. It's a new song that they wrote called Champagne and it's very undignified. <laughs> I feel, very, feel really feel sorry for Anne Margaret. Then for no reason at all, we get Jack Nicholson. He's playing the doctor. He does a great job, of course, because he's Jack Nicholson. This is post-Chinatown Jack Nicholson, so he's really slumming it here. Pre-One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I bet you that that day after filming, him and Oliver Reed did some fucked up shit in London. They, they, they probably uh, uh, painted the town red. <sighs> anyway. Um, so they find out that his deaf, dumb, and blind state is emotional, not physical. Then the, they do Tommy, Can You Hear Me? But it's just the mom instead of a quartet, which is what they use in the show, uh, which I was part of. I had the high part. And the, Tommy, can you hear me? Can you hear me, mama? And then the, she sings a terrible song called Smash the Mirror, uh, where she's uh, probably the, well, not the worst, because the worst comes in Sally Simpson. But the line, do you hear or fear or do I smash the mirror? <laughs> It's way worse if you say it, sing it the way I just sang it, but you get my point. And she sings it like four times. Do you hear or fear or do I smash the mirror? I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. <sighs> and then smashing the mirror cures him. I don't know why it does. I don't think the who knows why it does. Amazingly, Roger Daltrey doesn't sing at all until an hour into this film. And he sings, I'm free. And the way they film this is amazing. It's one of the better parts, too. It must have really felt like what peak freedom was. And that it's like a dude with his shirt off and he's running. And there's an ocean and there's uh, marine life. And he's doing somersaults and there's his effects. It's great. And then there's an extra, extra read all about it. The pin and a They do that a couple times. I like that. He becomes some kind of Christ figure, okay? And they do the Sally Simpson song, which is terrible. So Sally Simpson is like a self-contained little story. A Cena, uh, the Leonard Bernstein would call it. And it's, just, uh, long story short, it's about a young girl that's a fan of Tommy and she really wants to go to his concert and her dad says no. And she, for some reason, picks up a book of her father's life and throws it on the fire. 
What? What's a book of her father's life? Did the father write an autobiography? Okay. And then the mother, she knew deep, uh, what, what was it? She knew from the start, deep down in her heart, that she and Tommy were worlds apart. But her mother said, never mind, your part is to be what you'll be. Horseshit. Your part is to be, yes, it's bad, bad, bad lyric writing. Oh, here's the worst line in the whole show, guys. And I, th this was uh, like water torture to me when I did this show because I had to sing this. In the, and, and it was like a part that, I don't know why, if it was tricky or the, the thing after it was tricky. But I just remember one day having to sing this horrible line over and over again. Little, little Sally gets lost as the police boss the crowd back in a rage. Little Sally gets lost as the police boss the crowd back in a rage. Real bad. No one would ever say that the police boss the crowd back. Uh, am I nitpicking here? I don't know. It's unclear what Tommy is doing at these meetings that she was going to or these concerts. Like, is he preaching? What is he doing? He's playing pinball. And uh, there's a different ending to the Sally thing in the movie. Like, she gets a scar from the thing and she marries a rock musician, but it's like still a child. Like, she's still a child and the musician is still a child and he's dressed like Frankenstein for some reason. Also, it's the director's daughter. It's Victoria Russell playing Sally. <laughs> then there's a motorcycle gang war for no reason. Uh, why, you know? And then Tommy hand glides in and he saves everyone. And like, oh, he sings Sensation. Which actually does sound a lot like it uh, should be a song in a musical. And it is in a musical. Then he sings Welcome, which is a song he added for the movie. Which I guess Tommy starts a cult. And they're drinking green liquid. which is And this is five years before the People's Temple and the Kool-Aid drinking and the Jim Jones. Then Tommy's doing Reiki healing of some kind on some handicapped people. The, the movie at this point sucks. I'm done with the movie by now. I should tell you that. I know I said earlier, I was like, hey, I'm into this. I'm so done with the movie by now. I, I'm, I, I'm watching it and I'm strongly considering not watching it anymore. Turning it off. Um, the last song, sort of, I mean, it's in parts, but it's, it's called We're Not Gonna Take It. And it's not the Twisted Sister song. Uh, we're not gonna take it. It's we're not gonna take it. And his people turn on him real quick. And it's unclear why. And there's a difference uh, in how it is on stage and how it is in the movie and in the album. In the movie and on the album, he's like, I want you to put on earplugs and sunglasses and corks in your mouth. And you're not allowed to smoke and you're not, not allowed to drink. And also, don't be Mr. Normal for some reason. <laughs> Poor Mr. Normal. I don't know. What the, yeah. Just play pinball and be deaf, dumb, and blind like me. And then everyone says, fuck you. We don't want to do that. <laughs> On stage, the lyrics are totally different in this song. He's telling them the opposite. He's saying, don't be like me. Be yourselves. And then they don't like that. And so they rebel against that. Neither one really matters because it's all meaningless and it sucks. There's a very weird line in both versions where the crowd says after, we're not going to take it. Da, da, da. We forsake you. Maybe rape you. Let's forget you better still. Maybe rape you. We're definitely going to forsake you. We might rape you. Better, skill, better still, let's forget you. That's just awful. That is uh, nobody telling Pete Townsend that sucks. Because that's really stupid and bad. The crowd murders his mother and stepfather in the movie. And then he uh, takes a minute and sings as hear me, see me, <laughs> touch me, feel me. Uh, and then he does the listen to you. I hear the music right behind you. I give the beat. 
And that song is a banger, but it's an abrupt, pointless ending. It's just vague enough that it'll make us feel like it might be saying something, but it really isn't. In the movie, he crests this mountain. He swims through bodies of water, and he climbs up on these mountains. And he appears to be talking to God. You know, in the play, he's talking to his family, which is even weirder. But, you know, what, 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 what do you mean, listening to you, I hear the music? Like, your family just died. I don't know. I think that you're supposed to watch this and just be t into tapping your foot and not uh, anything else. This is a weird sign note. When you watch this on Amazon Prime, it suggests that you might want to watch the movie Clue next. And uh, I find that interesting. Those two movies are not very uh, similar to each other. Final thoughts on Tommy. Let's move on here. Um, Tommy is self-indulgent in all forms. This is, um, I mean, everybody ought to use art to express themselves however they care to express themselves. And, like, Pete Townsend clearly had some demons that he needed to exercise. But I think especially at the second half, this whole fame journey, who cares? It starts to feel like an act of therapy. And let me tell you something. I've written one musical that is unproduced, and it kind of, I did sort of start to think at a certain point, who is this for? This is just, I could, I think I just wrote this entire musical to heal myself. And I think that maybe that's what Tommy is. The only difference is that Pete Townsend is a person that people care or cared what he had to say. Uh, and uh, they, they all uh, let this happen. Anyway, in summation, not very good. Tommy is not a good show. It's not a good movie. But it's an okay album to listen to. But feel free to not listen to it. Let me do a, a fun segue. Um, when I was in Tommy, we went to a thing uh, here in Los Angeles called Musical Mondays in West Hollywood. Uh, I can't remember. I, I think maybe it's somewhere different now, but it it was at some place, some club, where on Mondays, uh, casts of musicals would come and perform. And uh, I didn't go. I uh, tapped out or I had something else going on, but... Everybody from the cast, when I saw them the next weekend for the show, they said that the cast of American Idiot, the touring of American Idiot was there, and that they were acting super entitled, like they were the only ones that mattered. So uh, there you go. That's how Tommy, in my life, brushed up against American Idiot. So let's talk about American Idiot, the Green Day jukebox musical. American Idiot, folks. And Now, I, I'm going to say something bold here. I know I'm an opinionated, I'm an opinionated asshole, and I know that a lot of my opinions are negative. American Idiot is one of the worst musicals of all time. American Idiot is garbage. It's horrible. It's based on a concept album by Green Day of the same name. They said that they were drawing from Tommy and Sgt. Pepper. It was released towards the end of 2004. Now, here's the thing. Around the end of 2004, I was just turning 21. I got my first iPod, a little iPod mini. And in those days, I kind of missed this. Like, you would load up your iPod with other people's music. You could plug it into someone's computer and drag their music into your iPod. And this was also concurrent with me starting to absorb non-musical theater music. And I had a lot of catching up to do. And uh, I was, so I was listening to all, I, I was very, my receptors were very open and I was listening to basically the history of uh, 
popular music up until that point. <laughs> and this one came in. It was huge. It was unavoidable. American Idiot by Green Day uh, at the end of 2004 and all the way to 2005 was everywhere. And I'll admit it. I really like the songs Holiday and Wake Me Up When September Ends at the time. I thought those were good songs. And I got them because I dragged them from somebody's thing onto my iPod. And I heard them walking around L.A. and said, yeah, I like this. Now I kind of recognize it to be all style, no substance. The music of Green Day. Green Day, if you're not familiar, they're a power trio. Um, at this point in 2004, they were a little past their prime. They had their heyday in the mid-90s. I remember my friends being into them when I was younger in the mid-90s, but I didn't like rock and roll music, and so I didn't uh, listen to it. But I heard it, and uh, a lot of it uh, sounds as familiar. Basket Case, etc. I don't remember the name of the one that goes like, na 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 So their previous record didn't do well, similar to The Who, actually. And they're not getting along. They're, they're having some uh, turmoil within the band. You got Mike Durnt, the bass player, and Trey Cool, the drummer. They think that Billy Joe Armstrong, the frontman and principal songwriter, is too controlling. And they have a George Harrison-esque problem. They're like, we got songs, we're trying to write songs, and he just wants to be the only one writing all the fucking songs and being the big fucking star while we're just his sidemen. This is bullshit, we don't like this. But they sit down, they have a sit down, and they kind of hash out their differences, and they said, let's do another album. And they agree that they'll all do it, but only if Billy Joe Armstrong gives these two guys room to be more creative. The result is an album called American Idiot, where there's a section that is one minute and 21 seconds long in the final track. It's a section of the final track written by Mike Durnt, and a 44 second section of the same final track written by Trey Cool, and everything else is written by Billy Joe Armstrong. So I don't know what happened to that agreement, but, uh, and those parts that those side men wrote are not bad they're, they're nice little songs i like them so uh there you go they started a different album but somebody stole all of their master tapes by the way and so they gave up on that album and started from scratch i didn't even realize listening to this thing um that it was at the time that it was uh quote unquote socio-political like it's kind of in there in the title song and in the song Holiday, but not really anywhere else. I found out today, researching this, apparently they watched Fahrenheit 9-11 and they drew inspiration from that. Fahrenheit 9-11 in 2004. Man, that, that brings me back to a time when there was a uh, unified left that, and, and uh, the right wing was the, the, the one thing we were all unified against instead of uh, being divided the way we are now. Mike Durant said, quote, You don't have to analyze every bit of information in order to know that there's something not fucking right and it's time to make a change. <laughs> All right, dummy. You could analyze a little information. It wouldn't hurt. Trey Cool hoped that this album would make young people vote Bush out of office in 2004. Whoops! <laughs> I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. Yeah. Great. So, but other than this supposedly socio-political theme, there's this whole goddamn, there's all these uh, through lines, like a, a rage and love, man. It's all about rage and love. Which reminds me, um, if you saw uh, Donnie Darko, the Patrick Swayze character, his whole thing that he's selling is everything in life is either fear or love. It's a very... Uh, uh, baby brain way of thinking about life and 
Billy Joe Armstrong has a baby brain, and so that's his thing. Um, he comes up with, the first thing he comes up with is, I'm the son of rage and love, the Jesus of suburbia. Now, this is, I'm going to quote him here, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong, who is not my favorite person in the world, by the way. He said, he came up with those words and then, quote, those words excited me and scared the piss out of me at the same time. <sighs> so the whole thing with rage and love, uh, it's brought up a bunch of times. Uh, Jesus of Suburbia is brought up a few different times. This character of St. Jimmy he keeps coming up. Somebody called What's-Her-Name keeps coming up. So they're, they're listening to Tommy, they're listening to Sgt. Pepper, and then they also listen to some original cast recordings, including Grease, West Side Story, Rocky Horror Show, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Which is interesting, because none of that really comes across. You know, very, much like Sgt. Pepper, this concept album abandons its concept early on and then just becomes a bunch of songs. And so there you go. Robert Christgau, Christgau, in The Village Voice, when the album comes out, reviewing the album, he calls it a dud. Quote, a dud. Quote, sociopolitical content for the emotional travails of two clueless punks, one passive, one aggressive, both projections of the auteur. There's no economics, no race, hardly any compassion. All right, is that fair, though? I mean, are those necessary in an album? I mean, the album is, a, it's, it's energy. So I don't think, here's the distinction. I don't think that it is uh, that Green Day, in doing the concept album of American Idiot, has a responsibility to address those things because they're just doing punk rock expression of energy or, you know, punk rock adjacent expression of energy. Unfortunately, some asshole on Broadway decides to take this album and make it into a story and then it's in dereliction of that responsibility for sure. So the story that they make around this fucking thing... And, <laughs> God. So when you do a jukebox musical, you, you got to write a story to take all these songs. And the worst example of this is We Will Rock You. Maybe on a future uh, episode of um, I Need You to Like Musicals, Karaoke Hell Edition, we'll talk about We Will Rock You. But that's like, it's the future and rock and roll is against the law. And they use that to take all these Queen songs and do the thing. So um, in this one, it's 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 kind of a loose story about three friends, Johnny, Tunny, and Will. And they live in a suburban place called Jingletown. And they decide we're gonna go to the big city, man. We gotta get out of this place, fuck this. And you know, at the last second, Will, he can't go because his girlfriend is Preggers, his girlfriend, Heather. But Johnny and Tunny, they go to the city. And immediately, Tunny just wants to sleep all the time, and he's, like, uh, depressed. He decides to enlist in the army. He gets sent to Iraq. He loses a leg. By the way, this is a period piece set in the mid-2000s, and it's a musical that came out in 2010. So, that's weird, right? Can we agree that's weird? Johnny gets addicted to heroin, and St. Jimmy is this symbolic fucking, you know, he's the dealer, but he's also like, ooh, he's the punk within Johnny that makes him want to do heroin, or whatever. By the end, you know, basic, nothing really happens. But by the end, Johnny's sober. Tunny is legless because he gets wounded in Iraq. And he's got this nurse girlfriend who loves him. And then Will decides, uh, maybe I'll be a decent father <laughs> to this baby. <laughs> I will now provide you with some thrilling tidbits about my personal journey with American Idiot. I was in it at that same theater where I did Tommy. 
but in 2015 and after the theater did a little bit of an upgrade and was sort of more of a professional uh, situation. Um, it was a great experience and it was way outside my comfort zone. It was not music that I liked. It was not content that I respected. But I saw that as an opportunity to do a little challenge. Because like I said maybe in previous episodes, I'm a sometimes actor. I do like one show per year, more or less. And I usually choose something that I just like really personally like. And a lot of it has been Sondheim because that's my favorite stuff. But in this case, I was uh, asked to audition for this. And I had just finished doing Putting It Together, the terrible Sondheim anthology show. And... I thought, like, maybe this will be a nice change of pace because that was like, you know, doing a concert version of droll little Sondheim songs for an elderly audience in a small theater. And I was like, let me do some Green Day. And, uh, yeah. I was weirdly miscast in the role of Tunny, the one that goes into the army. Um, I, and as my friend Angela, who also choreographed this, uh, pointed out, much to my chagrin and uh, hurt of my feelings, <laughs> I was, I do not look like a person that should uh, be in the army. They, I, I don't look like a person that's completed basic training. Let's put it that way. I'm not obese or anything. I just, look, whatever. So um, the cool thing about this theater is they, they would have like a really big budget and a really small space. And I think that that's great. I like intimate musical theater. And it was really kind of fun to see how much production value this eccentric millionaire could cram into this little theater. Uh, I did Tommy there. I did Jekyll and Hyde there. I did Avenue Q there. I did American Idiot there. That was the last one I did, 2015. And at the time of doing the show, I was extremely unhealthy uh, weight-wise. I think I had settled into a suburban 9-to-5 life, and I was co-parenting. And I think I weighed more than I ever have before. Every night during the run of the show, I did the following routine. Uh, before I went to the theater, I would go next door to Wingstop. I would have <laughs> 10 um, of the, the bone-in Louisiana Reb wings, and I would add five uh, boneless uh, mango habanero wings, and I would have French fries with either ranch or blue cheese. I would alternate that. So I, it's a lot of food, let's put it that way, for one person. I would sort of uh, snuff myself out with food so I didn't feel anything in my heart. And then I would go uh, next door to the little uh, market and get two tall Red Bulls. I would then go to the theater and then hang out backstage, get into costume, casually drinking one of the Red Bull. Then I would wait until they said five minutes to places and I would pound the second Red Bull. So that for the first three songs, American Idiot, Jesus of Suburbia, and Holiday... I was on fire and I was jumping around. So I had a belly full of fucking wings and a heart like a bomb, uh, to quote uh, American Idiot, and just jumping around. And this was a very uh, action-heavy uh, you know, part of the show, at least for me. Like I, I, There was some really good dancing in here, not that I did. I did a lot of sort of gyrating and running and like sort of jumping from a platform onto a scaffold and just like... Aah! And then right after Holiday comes, um, what's it called? Uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, where Tunny is, just wants to sleep all the time. And I would lie there on a little cot, just trying to make my heart slow down. 
and then would sort of coast through the rest of the show. But that was the routine. A lot of wings, a lot of energy drinks, a lot of running and screaming and singing, and then uh, recovering. Not very good uh, way to live. And that's how I was doing it. There were super fans that ended up coming to this American Idiot every night when I did it. Uh, but we remounted it months later. They called it American Idiot Reloaded. And <laughs> there, I noticed uh, there were people that would come every night. Um, and that was weird. There was a lady that made a t-shirt of the guy that played St. Jimmy and like became his uh, stalker or greatest fan. Or, I don't know. So anyway, um, I'm going to go through this show. Now, the resource that we have for American Idiot... <laughs> to analyze American Idiot, uh, if you will, is a documentary called Broadway Idiot about the making of the musical American Idiot. Broadway Idiot is one of the worst documentaries ever made. It's nearly impossible to sit through. Um, I have seen it a couple times. I saw it when I first got cast in the show, just to, out of curiosity for what I was about to... Uh, be involved in and boy oh boy and then I saw it today certainly and just clenched fists the whole time um suspiciously it is available to buy on Amazon for 99 cents so feel free that tells you how uh how much people enjoy this fucking thing Broadway idiot um and what's funny is when my stepson was a little bit younger um I used to be so outraged that he would do this thing <clears throat> where he would watch a movie and he would get bored. And so he would fast forward through parts that he found were boring. And I was like, are you, that's, that is ridiculous. And then I found out people in his generation and his peer group did this. Like they, they have a uh, viral video approach to watching cinema where like, yeah, skip this. It's boring. And then who knows what they missed in the, the plot. I felt like I wanted to do this. And I did do this, by the way, on the rewatch of this. Because I just couldn't fucking take it. The two heroes of this documentary are Billy Joe Armstrong, frontman of Green Day, Michael Mayer, musical theater director. These two men are the most unlikable humans ever. I... I can't even put it into words. You have to see it. Please, if you've never seen Broadway Idiot, do me a favor. Do yourself a disservice and do me a favor and watch this thing. Billy Joe Armstrong, of course, is just, he's a pathetic rock star. At this point, he's pushing 40 and he's still writing lyrics that sound like they're being scribbled into a ninth grader's composition notebook in 1997. Michael Meyer is musical theater incarnate. He's the sort of irritating person that this podcast is set up to try to avoid. He is obnoxious, the director of Thoroughly Modern Millie and Spring Awakening, big fucking deal. And the whole premise of this documentary is that these two people are so far apart from different worlds. One of them is a punk rocker from the mean streets of the East Bay, and the other is this privileged East Coast Broadway baby. And it's like, oh, how would we ever come together and make this work of art together? We find out later that this is total bullshit. <laughs> Let me, let me tease that. Let me not get into that. So they keep calling Billy Joe Armstrong a punk rocker. I'm not into punk. And I do peripherally sort of uh, get that there's this idea that there's a big identity buy-in to call yourself punk. There's that, so you're not punk and I'm telling everyone. Where it's like, don't say you're punk if you're not punk and that you could be a poser and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, let's 
acknowledge that Green Day is not like Green Day is a campy commodified perversion of punk. He's borrowing punk ele- elements, but uh, it's uh, oh, it's pop punk, okay? And that's what it calls itself. Whatever, who cares? We don't need to draw these lines. But it's it's a big focus on melody, I guess. That would be the kind way of doing it, of saying what pop punk is. But also, it's 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 it seems like pretend, make believe, dress up punk. And I don't know because I'm not a punk guy, but that's how I feel about it. So there you go. Michael Mayer, I I, I don't know if it's Mayer or Meyer. Yep, Mayer. Um, he shows us early on what an obnoxious asshole he is uh, when we have this conversation, this sit down, this meeting between he and um, Billy Joe Armstrong. And they're talking about the album and the songs. And they're talking about the song, Wake Me Up When September Ends. And they're like, why'd you write that song? What is September? And he, he, he you know, September was the month that uh, when Billy Joe's dad died. Uh, he was 10 years old. His dad died in September. And he's talking about, yeah, and there's just a thing about September for me. Like, it's just always the worst month of the year. It's just sort of like uh, when bad things happen. And I was listening to this. The first time I saw this, I was like, I kind of feel that way about September too. I feel like uh, the end of the summer is when um, things kind of collapse. And it's like, a, it's a hole you need to dig out of. So he's saying this and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of connecting with what Billy Joe Armstrong is saying. Then Michael Mayer, Broadway baby, uh, says, uh, this is like a direct quote. He says, Okay, for me, it was a 9-11 kind of thing. That's what resonated for me. He seems like visibly disappointed that the song is not about 9-11 and like won't accept it when Billy Joe says it's not. Because <laughs> so, he's, he's a fucking cheeseball. The actor playing the lead in the show on Broadway is John Gallagher Jr. If you've ever watched the Aaron Sorkin show, The Newsroom on HBO, he's that little twerp that plays, uh, what is it, Jim? The, the, the romantic lead. The guy that, eh, I'm, I'm a nerd, but I, you know, I'm super smart. He's the basically the the Bradley Whitford of the West Wing. He's like that in the newsroom of just this guy with uh, superhuman intelligence that always always does and says the right thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, it's a musical about post-9-11 United States, and it was written in 2010. And it's about, it's supposed to be about these fucking like angry suburban kids. But like the funny thing about this documentary is you're seeing these fucking annoying musical theater kids portraying angry suburban kids. And it's lame when they try to do it with the fucking tongue out and the middle finger. And the people that I did the show with, like they were all, I get, and I want to, I, I, this can't be stated enough. This can't be overstated. Musical theater people, one-on-one, if I meet them for coffee, I love them. I'm sure they're great. They're nice people. It's just when you get them all in a room together, you you hate it and you want to uh, end your life. And that's how I felt watching these people in this documentary. And that's how I kind of felt you know, around this cast, which was just like... Uh, so one of the kids in the fucking documentary, like they're hanging out and he goes, I am the king of fuck. Okay. They bring in Tom Kitt. To be the music supervisor, which, um, you know, why? Like, he's right off of Next to Normal. Tom Kitt is the guy that wrote the score to Next to Normal, which is a beautiful score. And um, it's weird that he's doing this job. And he seems like a, he's, he's you know, he, he wrote a nice score, but he seems like an obnoxious person also, just on the strength of what he says in this documentary. 
And one of the big moments in the documentary is that, so he rearranges, or he arranges rather, does an arrangement of a song called The Last Night on Earth. And it's supposed to be such a big fucking swing and such a departure from the original. He says, I'm going to do like a wall of sound Beach Boys vocal thing. They won't even know what the song is when they hear it. Wow. And they're like, oh my God. Like it's, it's, it's one of those fake fucking reality show drama moments where, okay, the band is coming in. They've been on tour. They haven't watched us in rehearsal. They're going to watch us. So, oh my God, what if they hate it? What if they hate, they think that we took too many liberties with it. And it's this totally staged moment where the director, Michael, comes up to Billy Joe and says, this song is, um, uh, you'll know the song when you hear it. And they do the song and they get to the, I've been a postcard to you. And then Billy Joe like nods like, oh, this song. And then it's over and he said, that was fucking sick. The whole thing, everybody is ass kissing. <laughs> like, and I think all the way through, everybody is super conscious of the fact they're on camera. You can tell. And just over laughing at every goddamn word that Michael Mayer and Billy Joe Armstrong say. Weirdly enough, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda is sitting there and looking way more sullen than usual during this scene. I, I have no idea why he's there. I don't know if they, like, called people in to give notes, but he's sitting there during this scene. Um, and uh, I'm not sure why. But, yeah, it's – it's uh, Billy Joe is just having his ass kissed the whole time. And it's, like, it's the least punk rock shit ever. And, by the way, this song that's apparently this uh, haunting – romantic ballad about people doing heroin it's the the it's the romance of the co of the couple doing heroin that's done a lot better on a little album called the sunset tree by a little band called the mountain goats with a little song called dinu lapati's bones check out that song if you think it's so cool that the song uh, last night on earth is um whatever also same year by the way 2004 so it was done better in the same year so fuck you green day uh, they use the word fag a little too much in this, and faggot. They do it a couple times, um, and it's uncomfortable. And I know they're using it in the schoolyard vernacular, and that's didn't age well. You don't really do that anymore. I, I, I don't want to pat myself on the back here <laughs> and uh, virtue signal. I swear to you, I know, I, I, I always thought it was weird to use that word in the schoolyard vernacular. And I know that there were ostensibly non-homophobic people that used to do that. But even as a kid in middle school, it, I used to flinch when people would say that word. So hooray for me is my point. Uh, the set designer says that she's trying to create a vessel for this event to happen inside of. And she makes a big room with 40 foot walls and TVs all over the thing, you know, whatever. And then there's a whole thing about musical theater I want songs. Shut up about the fucking musical theater I want songs, man. And then they say that Boulevard of Broken Dreams is the is the I want song. How the fuck is that an I want song? Listen to the fucking lyrics of the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. It's it's not one. And they show Michael Mayer singing, I want adventure in the great white somewhere. And everybody cracks up, uh, even though it's not funny and he's terrible. Uh, this is kind of super negative. This documentary enraged me, by the way, guys. I was so mad at it, and I I did fast forward through parts of it. I don't know if this is interesting at all to listen to. I'm sorry if it isn't, and if that you just uh, have turned this off already. Well, if you have, then you're, you know, whatever. All of the bonding that they're doing, that the cast is doing, and the band is doing with the cast is so fucking fake, and it's forced. 
And, you know, these actors are annoying, but I want to say, you know, it's not their fault. I think it's a necessary part of what they are. Like, to be an actor, you have to be a friendly, accommodating person. I'm just always disappointed to see it, especially when it's somebody I respect or somebody that whose talent I respect. I hate to then see them be a bullshit artist off stage or off screen. And you really, you know, these people are clearly talented at what they're doing. But first of all, what they're doing is trash. And their behavior off stage in front of documentary cameras is practically intolerable. Michael Mayer acknowledges we can't change what they're saying. We have to keep the lyrics in. So we have to figure out a way to plot out a real story. And at one point he says, it's not Norman Rockwell. This is a portrait of America today. Is it really a portrait of America today? A bunch of angry white suburban kids? You know, that's also what Hamilton was saying. You know, Hamilton, at least, it looks like it. That was their whole thing. It's America then and it looks like America now. You know, they, they, they bring in some token black ladies in this American Idiot cast, but it really is a white person story and a white person vibe. Billy Joe Armstrong says, For the first time, my melodies feel validated. What an asshole. When Tom Kitt put his spin on my music... We created a dialogue I've been waiting to have my entire life. Shut up! <sighs> 21 Guns, they do a whole thing where he, I'm going to bring you guys into the world of Green Day after you invited me into the world of Broadway where he brings the cast into the studio to record 21 Guns. But they're recording it exactly like at a fucking cast album. They're not recording it in the way that they were, whatever. And then, and, and by the way, that song is awful. That's a really boring, nothing, four-chord shit song. And the number of chords doesn't matter. I don't know why I, you know, feel the need to point out it's a four-chord song. I think it's dumb to, you know, there, you could have a two-chord song that is amazing. But 21 Guns ain't it. 21 Guns is a piece of shit. And it's off of their newer album. They, they, they pulled from a 20th Century Breakdown, which is another stupid fucking name for a thing. <laughs> And they're in the studio there and, you know, Billy Joe Armstrong, they're all singing together. And then he says, can we do one without sunglasses? And they all laugh like they're, you know, watching Borat for the first time. It's not funny, but they're all. <laughs> the theater laugh. I'm sorry if that was loud, by the way. I'm going to turn that down in post production. Then. So let me remind you, the whole premise of this is that this is a punk from the fucking mean streets. And he's coming up against Broadway and it's a. Odd couple. It's a fish out of water. Then we see footage of Billy Joe Armstrong as a little boy in 1983 singing Send in the Clowns and Kids from Bye Bye Birdie. And he tells us that from the age of four to 14, he took vocal lessons and he sang a bunch of songs for musicals. He didn't tell his friends because he didn't think it was very masculine. And they go through this whole thing. Then they, they, Tom Kitt at the piano explains how, you know, Wake Me Up When September Ends, the chord progression is the same as the same pattern as Broadway chord progressions. He plays What I Did For Love from Chorus Line. And he's like, it's so, they talk about how oh, it's so tin pan alley. So then it's the same. So that it's not two worlds colliding. It's musical theater music already. And that's obvious. If you listen to Green Day, even the older Green Day, the stuff in the 90s, it sounds like, the Basket Case sounds like it's from a fucking musical. And they keep on saying it. I don't know how Billy Joe and I, who come from such different worlds, could come together and make this art. 
so anyway, they do the whole thing on in Berkeley, and then they perform at the Grammys. And while they're performing at the Grammys, they find out the show's going to move to Broadway. It premieres on Broadway. Donald Trump comes to see it. And Billy Joe is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Um, fucking Donald Trump. And as we learned, um, you know, Donald Trump did a whole thing because Phantom of the Opera just closed. And I read, uh, I don't remember what episode of Sondheim on Adderall it was, but I read his uh, comments about Phantom of the Opera. I feel like Donald Trump uh, really only likes to get in on the ground floor of things. He loves that he was there for opening night of Phantom of the Opera because like, it was the biggest sensation ever and I was there. But And so he, he probably tried to do that with American Idiot and uh, swing and a miss <laughs> because uh, American Idiot uh, no longer matters. Uh, I mean, you know, there are people, it has an audience, but it's not, you know, it's not the biggest hit of the century. Michael Mayer says, I am 100% honest about this. I don't read the reviews. I don't read the reviews. Very convenient, Michael, because here's what the reviews said. My uh, Jim Harrington in the Oakland Tribune says uh, in co comparing the album with the stage musical, what was once a fine Gouda has been prepackaged as Velveeta. Damn right. Well put. Richard Zoglin in Time Magazine says, quote, American Idiot, despite its earnest huffing and puffing, remains little more than an annotated rock concert. That's right. But the audience response was over the top. So I don't read the reviews. <laughs> I'm so above it. You read the reviews, you fucking liar. The big twist at the end of the documentary is that Billy Joe Armstrong uh, decides he's going to play St. Jimmy. He's going to come in and sit in and play St. fucking Jimmy. Uh, and boy, that sucks for that actor. If you're the guy that, you know, landed the role of St. Jimmy. And then Billy Joe comes in and is like, ah, I'm going to do it. And then everyone's going to get real fucking excited. Did you hear? Oh, it's like, oh, hush, hush. They don't do a press. Billy Joe is going to play St. Jimmy. And then you've got to do the rest of the run. And everyone's like hoping that Billy Joe is going to pop up. Uh, and then it's you, and everyone's like, oh, okay. Anyway, that's showbiz, buddy. So, uh, just a few things about a couple extra miscellaneous things in the songs and everything. It starts, here's the thing. American Idiot has an interesting enough premise. Um, and somebody sh could have written an original musical that didn't need to have songs that were shoehorned into a dumb story. But the premise of aimless suburban youths loitering at a 7-Eleven in, you know, in suburbia, that's not bad. I mean, that is kind of not uh, something that Broadway has really explored. Um, and you could do that. Like, there's, there's a good version of that you could do that's not the music of Green Day. The script is so awful guys like it's not there's not much dialogue it's mostly just little mini speeches between songs with lines like let's start a war shall we that nobody would ever say and that only a moron in their 40s would write and imagine any 20 year old would ever say outside of a 7-eleven and it's sort of riding a line where it could it has deniability where it's like kind of seems like maybe it's satirizing these people, but also trying to be earnest. And it's so it's a cop out. It's a lazy fucking cop out. The women in the show are all symbols. I mean, they say as much. She's a symbol. Dun, 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 except for Heather, you know, the one that gets pregnant. And in Jesus of Suburbia, that long, long, long song, uh, the second song in the show and, and on the album. 
when she is looking at a pregnancy test, the lyrics that she's singing do not match that situation at all. She is singing, Oh, therapy, can you please fill the void? Am I retarded or am I just overjoyed? Okay, dude. What does that have to do with your pregnancy test? The, the cast, and this was, you know, this survived in our version of it. The, the cast gives the middle finger so many times that it becomes meaningless. You, you flip so many fucking middle fingers that it's just, why are we even, okay. It, 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 that is not punk rock at all. It's just a fucking, ugh, whatever. My big song is Are We The Waiting, uh, Tunny. It's a terrible song. Shitty song about nothing. <laughs> are we, we are, are we, we are the wedding. <laughs> and that's the song where he decides to go into the army, I guess. But the lyrics of the song, of course, have nothing to do with that. There's a, another terrible song that Will sings called Give Me Novocaine. Where he says, drain the pressure from the swelling. Okay, doctor. Drain the pressure from the swelling. And then uh, Extraordinary Girl. You know, people fly on stage in the Broadway thing. And uh, the production team took one look at me and said, we can't do that with this guy. That'll tear the fucking roof out. So we used silks. Or I was not on the silks, but the extraordinary girl I was singing the song with was on silks while I stayed on the ground and just looked at her in amazement. Oh, boy. And, you know, 21 Guns, like I said, it sucks. Know Your Enemy sucks. That's an annoying song. Um, I made a bold choice. So the, the director was kind of absent in this and, you know, he's a nice guy or whatever, but he was more of a producer and he kind of just like left everything to his assistant and everybody kind of did whatever they wanted. <laughs> like there was so many things going on at the same time, like during 21 Guns, like there's, I'm over here trying to walk and kept falling and crying because I lost my legs and like Johnny's over here fucking, you know, having an overdose on heroin and then Will's on the other side of the stage doing whatever the fuck Will's doing and it was just it drew the focus was uh, anyway there was nobody around to be like hey you do this at this point and you do this at this point it was just a bunch of shit happening at the same time so during Wake Me Up When September Ends where I'm just up on a second floor platform um, singing this song I made a bold choice as a uh, lifelong <laughs> pacifist <laughs> where um, there happened to be a trash can <laughs> down um, on the first floor, I uh, decided I would, uh, during Wake Me Up When September Ends, uh, take off my dog tags and throw them in the trash can. So there you go, buddy. Uh, he sort of comes home as a war hero in the original. They had me come home in my regular street clothes, not in my army clothes, which suited me just fine that worked for my dog tag throwaway so i added a little uh, silent protest Ugh, you know stupid whatever they oh my god the the the, the pr team actually on veterans day uh, <laughs> released a photo of me in the uh <laughs> the scene where i lose my legs and said we honor our veterans <laughs> i still have that somewhere it's it's really funny so, um, and, uh, you know, of course, at the very end of the show, just to please the crowd, they end it with good riddance. Yeah, the fucking graduation song by Green Day that they did a decade earlier. It's not that unpredictable, but in the end, that's right. 
I hope you had the time of your life. They do that after the fucking curtain call. It has nothing to do with anything. And it's just like, we will rock you that I talked about before. Like at the end of We Will Rock You, they, they win and they sing We Are The Champions and then they sing We Will Rock You. And then that little card comes up, says, hey, do you guys want to hear Bohemian Rhapsody? And then they end it with Bohemian Rhapsody. So anyway, here are my final thoughts on American Idiot by Green Day. It would be easy to say, and I think a lot of people have said, that this is a uh, corporate defanging of something rebellious and cool. You know, and the people have aged that use this as a rebellion thing, and it's a nostalgia thing for them. And it's now very uncool, because those people aren't cool anymore, this music's not cool anymore, and it's been defanged. But I think the truth is, these Green Day songs never had any fangs in the first place. They were always selling soap. Like they, at the time, there were real rebellious punk songs and this was shit that just sucked. And when I was in fifth fucking grade, like it looked and sounded dangerous. Like when I went to a friend's house and they put Basket Case on, I was like, oh, this music is scary. I better go home and listen to company. <laughs> but it wasn't, it, they're not punk. Green Day is not actual punk. They're little punk ass bitches. They always have been. And they belong on Broadway more than they belong on the punk scene. But some of the melodies are catchy and fun. And so there you go. This concludes our episode. Episode one of our series that's going to go throughout. I'm not going to, you know, it's going to be uh, every now and then I'll decide to do another installment of this of Karaoke Hell. Hopefully next week we can talk about something good. And I'm sorry for venting all of this negativity this week. Now, uh, in classic fashion, I did not prepare a closing quote. I'm going to find one right now. Give me one second. All right, here we go. This is the best I can do. The episode was negative. The musicals were trite. I hope you had the time of your life. That's what they call a near rhyme, otherwise known as a false rhyme. Thank you, folks, for bearing with me this week, and um, see you later. <laughs>